Well, if you will open your Bibles uh, to Jonah, we're going to begin there. I get the privilege to share with you Jonah's chapter 1 and 2 this morning, and then next week I get to preach again as long as I don't screw up too bad this morning. And uh, we get to talk about Jonah's 3 and 4. Um, if I start going forward really fast or backwards really fast and you know going ever which way, just kind of think of it as I'm learning to drive a clutch right now and just bear with me. So if we stop and hold, just uh, we'll, we'll make it work out. But to begin, uh, we're going to kind of look at more of the setting and the little bit of history that we know about the book of Jonah and Jonah uh, himself. Um, so we will begin. Um, a lot of new things are happening this morning, so there's a new presentation. If that messes up as well, uh, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll continue. So to begin, uh, Jonah. Before I start verse 1, you know, who is Jonah? What do we know about Jonah? The book just starts abruptly, says the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and we don't really know where Jonah had came from at this point in the book. The only other area that we hear of Jonah mentioned um, where he actually speaks is in 2 Kings, and that's where we get the information that Jonah's a prophet, other than the fact that his book is with the other minor prophets. Um, so we know that Jonah's a prophet. He's in about the 8th century. Um, he lives in Gath Hefer, is where he is from, or Hepper. Uh, I'm still working on my pronunciations of things, uh, which is just west of the Sea of Galilee. So it's in Israel. Um, and he preaches to the people of Israel whenever God commands him to, and that is his job. Uh, and so you would think that he has a fairly good relationship, a, a fairly good uh, um, uh, communication with God, because he does it on a regular basis, uh, at least we're assuming. Um, and so this whole story of Jonah is rather puzzling. And so we'll begin in Jonah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Pretty simple instruction, right? He says, go to Nineveh, preach against it. The wickedness has come up before me. Whenever that happens, something really bad is going to happen. Nineveh is probably going to be destroyed. And so he says, go talk to them. Maybe they'll change their mind. And immediately, we look down into verse 3, it says, But Jonah ran from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, to give you a, a brief description of Nineveh, uh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria at this time. It is a very large city. It's about 48 miles long. Uh, this is not uh, a place uh, that's really tiny, not, not anything like Gatha for where he's from. Is filled with uh, what we know from Jonah of over 120,000 people, um, and it is uh, a very heinous city. They are terrible people. They do a lot of crazy things. I'm not going to get into it to save us all from the details, uh, but it's just not a fun place. And so just from knowing that, it's obvious why you wouldn't want to go there. But then again, he's taking instruction from the Lord. And this is his job. He's supposed to go, and he's supposed to speak to whoever God so chooses. But immediately, he runs away and heads down to the farthest corner of the earth that he can think of, and that is Tarshish. So he runs away, and it says uh, in verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. 
All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own god, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your god. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And verse 12, he says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So we're going to stop a little bit. I know that was a large passage, but um, we're going to try and get through this. Uh, practicing a few times, I barely got to chapter 2, so trying to speed it up a little bit. <laughs> so anyways, to try and look at the setting, what we're in right now... Um, Oh, yeah, I got this cool map up here for us to look at. Oh, no, go back. Thank you. Um, so he gets down to Joppa. He gets on a boat full of Gentile sailors. You know, this is not an area that he's really enjoying. You know, he's a Jew. He likes to stay with his people. If he comes near Gentiles, he becomes unclean. You have to go this whole process. He wants to stay as far away from them as much as possible. But considering the desperate situation he has to get as far away as he can from Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa, he gets on a boat, and he runs to Tarshish, which in the known world, that is the farthest corner at this point. And so any farther than you're coming to America. Um, so he's in the middle of the ocean. He's with the sailors. Everything seems to be all hunky-dory. And a great storm comes about like they have never seen. So much that they start to question, you know, what's wrong? Somebody's responsible for this storm. And I'm assuming that storms happen in the Mediterranean fairly often. But this one is unlike any other. And so they start to ask, you know, what's the issue here? Something else is going on. So they cast lots. And so they cast lots, and the lots fall on Jonah. And so they say, this is your fault. What are we to do? And the thing uh, to notice here, you know, with these sailors, in consistent amount of traveling in the water that they are deathly afraid. This type of fear um, you see when you're in a foxhole, you know. There's no atheist in a foxhole. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. And this is one of those situations. They start crying out to their gods. You know, they're they're obviously polytheists. They start crying out to whoever they can to try and save them. And then their last resort is Jonah, who for some reason is asleep in the boat, which doesn't make any sense considering the situation. The boat is about to break into bits, and Jonah is asleep. Now, the only thing that I can think of with Jonah being asleep at the time is he feels secure with his situation. He feels safe. He's content. Now, why would he feel content considering the fact that they're all about to die? And again, I would come to the conclusion because he's okay with dying. And why would he be okay with dying? And obviously the sailors, they're not ready to die. They're not wanting to die. They, They don't even know what their life is being lived for at this moment. They're just wanting to stay alive. And Jonah doesn't really care. He doesn't really care about them, let alone the Ninevites. 
So the captain comes down and he says, wake up, pray to your God. Maybe he will save us. Maybe he's the God that will save us because right now we've done all we can. And so Jonah says, yes, my God, I am Hebrew. He is the God of the land, of the sea. He controls it all. And then the men say that, or it says that the sailors are terrified. And this type of fear um, we know as a, uh, the Hebrew word for this fear is, is yira, or ya, excuse me, yar. If we can go to the next slide. Oh, that's the next one, sorry. But uh, the Hebrew word here is yira, and this is a type of fear that is a positive quality, this reverence, this respect, this, um, you see the awesomeness of God. And there's a couple type of fears that we will look at, because this is where I'm going to stick for a little while, and because this is what is missing in Jonah, this fear for God. You know, there's no, there's no reverence, there's no respect, because he's sitting down in the boat just saying, you know, I'm okay with dying, I know who God is, you know, and I know where I'm going. So he comes back up on the boat, he says, you know, it's my fault, the only way to get the, the storm calm is to throw me into the sea. And again, it's still resulting in death for him, and he's fine with it. Instead, in verse 13, we, see, we read, Instead the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder and, than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, the character that we have for the sailors is obviously completely contrary to Jonah's. They have this reverent fear, this deep respect for who God, who they see God is now, and immediately they, they fall back in worship, they sacrifice, they make vows to him, and that is their God now. They see you are the one that is the ruler of the universe. We're going to follow you. And we are sorry for throwing this guy into the sea, but it seemed like our only option. They didn't even want to kill him. You know, in a Jew's perspective, this Gentile is an evil person. You know, he has no morals. And yet these sailors decide, we want to row as much as we can to try and save your life. And my assumption is they're in the middle of the Mediterranean at this point. You know, there's nothing really close by. You know, but they're going to try anyways, but they can't because the harder that they row, the harder that the storm gets. And so their only option is to throw Jonah into the sea. And again, Jonah just kind of seems all nonchalant about the situation. He says, yeah, okay, you know, this is the only way it's going to be calm. I guess, you know, it's over. Oh, well. And they're distraught like, are you kidding me? Why would you tell us to do this? And again, I, I have to go back to this fear. The men are terrified to kill him. They don't want to touch him. They, they don't want to have that blood on their hands. They're praying to God, do not condemn us for killing this innocent man, who they believe to be innocent. Obviously, he wasn't. But still, it's still murder. But nonetheless, they threw him into the sea. And Jonah expects, at least I believe he expects, to die. I don't think he knew that there was a plan that he was going to be swallowed by a fish. Uh, at least it doesn't say that he knew. So he's expecting to die. And if that was the case, then Nineveh would be destroyed. 
you know, the message would not be brought to them. They wouldn't know. And, you know, Jonah would basically get his way. And all because there was no, there was no fear, there was no respect, which eventually turns into a love. And that love turns into knowing who God is. And so I'd venture to say so far, and this is, this is my outlook on it, but that Jonah didn't really know God that he more, it was more of kind of a religion for him, you know, something he grew up with, you know, this is my day-to-day, um, this is what I have to do, it's, it's common for me to communicate with God, to, to send his message to other people, but there was no true relationship, true commitment there, at least not at this stage in his life. And so we start to ask, you know, well, what fear is he not you know, displaying? What is this fear that he needs? And this fear that we're talking about is this yira fear that I had mentioned earlier that the sailors had portrayed. This yira that refers to this positive quality of who God is, this respect. It acknowledges God's good intentions for us. Now, the, the Greek word for fear, this is later in the New Testament, we read a lot, is phobos, This is more of a a reverential fear of God, not just a mere fear of his power and righteous retribution, but a dread of displeasing him or disobeying him. And so we have, again, this deep respect for him. And Thomas Nelson uh, put it this way, and uh, he said, the fear of God is an attitude of respect, a response of reverence and wonder. It is the only appropriate response to our our creator and redeemer, so if, if you ever look in the Bible in, in various different portions, you see that fear of God is a pretty important thing. Um, we read this continually through Proverbs, through Psalms, and we read this from King Solomon, who was considered to be the wisest man uh, that ever lived. And he said that the, Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the psalmist reiterates in Psalm 111, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. And again, in Psalm 34, King David tells us, Learning the fear of the Lord. He says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You start to see a common trend here. Once you have this type of fear for God, your actions display this respect, this love, this willingness to obey what he has, uh, what he's telling you to do. And if that happens, then we keep his commandments and we begin to learn more the character of who God is. I'm kind of going to read a long snippet of Hebrews here. And I know it's uh, one of the spectrum to the other from Jonah down up to Hebrew. But I think it's important for us to see, uh, to read this passage. Um, Well, I'll just begin. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. It says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment... Do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, 
I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Now, if the Ninevites knew this, you know, obviously the sailors immediately knew this just by seeing his actions displayed in the sea, that they stepped back and said, whoa, we need to recalculate, recompute, rerouting, you know, (laughs) where we are heading with our lives. And they did, immediately. I, I'm, I'm going to guess it's maybe just a few hour time frame, beginning from the beginning of the storm to the point that it was calmed. You know, It was that quickly that their lives were changed, that they were easy, it was easy for them to see God's power, and they feared it. Not with a timid or cowardice fear. That type of fear is, uh, the, the word for that is uh, delia. Um, the fear is cowardice or timidity. Um, the fearfulness of you know, something bad. This isn't a reverent fear. So then what is the purpose of having this? And we've kind of touched on that a little bit, but the purpose is that we learn to love God through this type of fear. And again, if we love God, we will follow God we will start continually you know, having this fearfulness of disobeying his commands. And an easy analogy to understand is uh, a family, right? You have children. All of us have. Well, I don't have children, but a lot of you guys have children, and a lot of you have parents, and you've grown up with this idea of obeying and disobeying and wanting to please or displease your parents. And it's a, it's a, it's a transition from childhood that we make of not wanting to displease and we know when we're caught and we give this face of I'm guilty to, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, we start to think, oh, my parents hate me. And then, you know, at least for me, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, you know, this whole time frame to where I start to see, wow, they actually loved me. They cared for me. This is why they said this to me. And now my relationship with my parents is a lot deeper than it was when I was 6, 7, you know, 12, 13. Now there's this respect that I have for my parents. They didn't punish me and display any anger, you know. They, they, well, they punished me, but they weren't displaying anger in their punishment. They were displaying love in their punishment. And they're like, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, you're lying. I got a red mark. <laughs> but I didn't understand that. You know, at the time, I just thought they were beating me. Thankfully, I didn't call Child Protective Services. Um, not that I ever threatened. That was just a joke. But as children, when we're young, we continue, you know, this constant, you know, checking our boundaries, you know, sinning continually. You know, we're always being put back into check and always being disciplined. And this is... You know, Jonah, I see, is just in this child stage. He's not mature, at least in his faith. And, you know, the more and more that I read and dive into this, the more and more that I can apply this to myself. And, you know, now that I'm preaching uh, for the first time ever, you know, so many things go through my head that, uh, you know, it's really hard to be a teacher, a preacher, understanding that I'm trying to tell you what to do. Uh, and say what is right, and then I have to walk off stage and really make sure that I'm doing that as well, you know. 
I tell you not to color on the walls, and we get done with service, and I'm going to be on the other side just coloring on the wall. You know, it, uh, it's difficult, is what I'm trying to say. Um, it definitely holds uh, each one of us to a higher standard. And as Christians, we all carry that same burden, not just, you know, those who preach up on Sunday mornings. But each one of us are supposed to be examples in the way that we live our lives. And each one of us are to carry the message, the same message that Jonah was called to bring to those around us. And one of the things that I wanted to touch on, um, I didn't know if it was in your bulletins or not, I actually didn't put it up on screen, but one of the things that caught my attention, and I heard this a couple weeks ago, and I need to reference it, but I don't know where I heard it from, uh, and, it, and it went... Uh, that you have to love people before you can serve people. And that's non-existent in Jonah for the Ninevites. And that's non-existent for many of us, I know for me, for a lot of people. You know, Kenine Sadatna is a small place. There's not a ton of people, but there are still people that I don't purposefully avoid necessarily, but uh, you know, if I didn't talk to them, I'd be okay with it. You know, and now that I live in Portland and I go to school there during, you know, the, the school season, and there's just thousands of people that I walk by all the time. And I, you know, I do that same thing. There's, there's, there's no love there, and I step aside and I just wait for them to walk by because, you know, he's got a nice grungy beard and I can't grow one, you know. <laughs> um, but I do the same action, the same action of purposefully stepping away because I don't really have this deep care for him. And why not? You know, why doesn't Jonah have this deep care? Well, Jonah has a little bit of an excuse in this situation. And this little bit of an excuse at the time was the fact that they're Gentiles and it's unclean to, to go near them. They, they had this picture in their mind that they are the chosen people. He's an Israelite. We are not allowed to go near anything like that. If, if we were, then, it, it, uh, well, I'll just keep from saying what might happen terrible things. But the funny thing is, is that before the book of Jonah, as early as the book of Isaiah, uh, but a little closer, um, is Amos, that God says that the Gentiles will bear the same inheritance, that they also will bear my name. Now, to this day, for some Orthodox Jews, they read that passage in Amos and Isaiah, and they don't want, they don't want to read it. Um, I'll go ahead and actually read it for you guys. Um, Israel's restoration, Amos 9:11. It says, "In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name," declares the Lord, who will do these things. Now, there's different versions of it, and it says, "All the people will be, all the nations will bear my name." But that is also referring to everyone not just the Israelites. And in Isaiah, uh, there's a cha chapter 56 talks about the salvation for the Gentiles. You know, we're, th this message wasn't to be kept from them forever. And this was kind of one of those areas that was, uh, it felt black and white to Jonah. And he said, no, they deserve what's coming. I don't want to be near them. As if we're entitled to this promise, they are not. And I think we have that same attitude a lot of times. I have that same attitude a lot of times when I see someone. Not to say that, oh, you know, they're not allowed to know God, but more, 
Someone else will tell them. I don't need to tell them. You know, the next guy can. Because I don't have that love for that person, that care for them. They're just as entitled to know that. It's, it's our job to, to share that gift. It's not our gift that was given. You know, it's not ours that, we, that we're able to give, you know, to anybody. It's God's gift that we're supposed to give freely to everyone. We're supposed to share. It's not our job to wait for them to walk through the door. It's our job to come meet together fellowship and then go out the door and say, you know, you are loved by God, and for that reason, I love you. And Jonah doesn't want that to happen to the Ninevites. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you the, near the end of chapter 4, you know, he says, or the beginning of chapter 4, he says, you know, I knew you were going to do this. I knew because you're a gracious and compassionate God abounding in love. And we'll talk about that more next week. But, you know, he says, I didn't want this to happen. You know, I didn't want you to save them. And I, he kind of felt the same way about the sailors. He was asleep in the bottom of the boat. You know, he was forced to come up because the captain yelled at him. And he says, okay, it's my fault. Throw me in the sea. I guess I'm going to die now, and you guys go on your way, and Nineveh will go on their merry way, and, you know, we'll all be fat, dumb, and happy. But that's not the plan that took place. Instead, he's swallowed by the fish, and he's halted. <laughs> and if you had this expectation that you were going to die and you thought, oh, I kind of get my way, Nineveh's going to be, you know, they're going to be punished for what they've done. And then, boom, you're swallowed by a fish. The only thing that's going through my head, and I'm still alive, is crap. You know, ah, oh, so close. <laughs> and so he's in the belly of the fish. And we get to chapter 2. And it's this long poetic prayer. Well, actually, it's not that long. It's only 10, 9 verses. But I'm going to read it for you here. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I, distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth barred me beneath me, barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord." Now, before we read verse 10, again, you read through this, this passage, this psalm, and you don't really feel like, you know, he has this great feeling of remorse and repentance of what he's done. You know, he just kind of says, you've always watched over me, and, you know, I will keep my vows to the end of my days, which is probably tomorrow. You know, he's thinking he's, again, still going to die. He's in the belly of the fish. No one really lives in the belly of a fish. And my assumption is he's not sitting, you know, crisscross applesauce, you know. He's probably squished up inside the, the fish's intestines, not to give you a graphic picture. But, uh, you know, he doesn't have a lot of room. Maybe he's just kind of unconscious, but still conscious enough to pray, obviously. And so he's still thinking, I think, that he's going to die. And I, and I believe this, because in types of poetry, you have certain things you look for. And one thing is a theme of the poem. And the theme of the poem, I believe, 
is verse 4. And I say this because between verses uh, 3 and 5, or verses 3, 4, and 5 is a chiasm. And in a chiasm, in the first and the last, there's a repetition. And in the middle is the theme of what is being said. And so that's, and again, this is my interpretation of what I think it to be. But verse 4 is, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. And that kind of implies I'll look again to your holy temple that I will come and reign with you in heaven because I'm about to die. And he continues his prayer and kind of hypocritically he goes to verse 8 and says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And God's thinking, yeah, the grace that could be Nineveh's and you didn't go and tell them. You know, they have a billion different idols that they're worshiping and you had the opportunity to go and share with them the grace that I have for them and they're not purposefully forfeiting it. You are. You're not giving them the opportunity, the chance. And yet he says this verse, and he says, and I will keep your vows, I will sacrifice to you, you know, thank you for always being there for me. The end. Okay, I'm ready to go. And then in verse 10, it says, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. <laughs> and again, he comes up on shore, and all I'm thinking is, dang it. Now I'm just forced into this situation. Now I have to go. I just told him that I'd keep the vows and those that worship other idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now I have to go and tell them something. And that's where we pick up into verse three, or chapter 3 and chapter 4, which I'm really excited about for next week because there's a lot more meat than in this one, I feel. However, the first couple chapters are important enough to realize that, at least I think, that this loss of fear that Jonah does not have for God, this respect, this love, and, you know, to continue, he doesn't know him. And we act so similarly in a lot of ways, at least I do, and that whenever we do sin, you know, we make that decision. You know, we say, yes, I'll do this. I'm not really afraid that God's going to judge me right now because it's not going to be an immediate judgment. Maybe. Maybe it will. Maybe I'll be struck by lightning. But usually it's not. So I'm just going to take it and I'll deal with the judgment at the end. Or God will forgive me and I'll just, you know, abuse his grace. You know, we don't want to continue sinning that grace may abound. You know, Romans 6, 1 tells us that. You know, rather that we have died to our sin, we've let go of our sin. Now, it's a little bit different situation with, you know, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. You know, they had to continually make sacrifices at this time to atone for their sins. But again, he's not, he's not looking at it in this light. And he's stealing from the Ninevites, something that doesn't belong to him. You know, he thinks that this promise of living of you know reigning with god is only for him and 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 so i kind of see that as as theft you know it's it's not his gift it's not our gift alone our great commission you know we go back to our great commission of, of the reason you know back to abraham that we're to be a blessing to the world you know we we aren't jews we're gentiles but we have the same calling And once we hit chapter 2, it seems, it seems he still hasn't gotten that message yet. He hasn't reached that point. He's, you know, he thinks he's on the edge of his death, and he's ready to die. 
for what he believes to be true. He's that stubborn. And more often than not, we have the same attitude. We're just as stubborn to not have that fear for God, to not love God, to not get to know God, and that deprives everyone else who has the same inheritance as we do. And then we wonder why you know, the world is so crazy. And then we start to pinpoint you know, who's better than others and start nitpicking at you know, sins and people's character. And um, we start drawing a picture of, oh, that would probably be a good person to talk to. You know, they seem like they have decent morals. They're well-dressed. You know, they, they, they don't intimidate me with a cool beard, so I'll go talk to them. <laughs> uh, Isaac intimidates me with his beard. I wish I had one like him. <laughs> And so we start saying, I'll, I'll go talk to them. You know, I think, and, you know, I, <laughs> when I was practicing my sermon, I said this uh, in a couple times, and, you know, again, I'll share this with you, and it just, it, you know, it makes me realize how much work I have to do in the same area, because I think I can count on both hands how many people I've shared the gospel with that had never heard of before. And, uh, and I start to think, you know, 23 years of living, it's a long time. 20 years of living, and I've only, you know, maybe talked to eight, nine people about God, the greatest gift that we've ever been given, and yet I have this same reluctance, this, uh, you know, the same, you know, there's no fear for their loss of life, no love for them. It's trying to get into my time slot, which is good. And so we start to ask ourselves, you know, well, how do we obtain this, this fear, this, this respectful, this reverent, this awesome fear for who God is? And again, it's just a, a decision we make. We start to realize, well, he's actually real, and he actually has the ability to judge us. He controls the universe. If that doesn't already you know, cause us to crawl into a foxhole and say, yes, you are God, then I don't know what will. But this reverent fear that we have, we have for him will develop into this great love. And this great love will develop into wanting to know God and will, you know, each be a man and woman after God's own heart, Hopefully. You know, Chris touched on, uh, talked about last week about knowing God. You know, that we don't really know who God is because our image of God is whatever we want it to be, and that becomes our idol in our life. And I don't exactly know what Jonah's idol is, but if we each look at ourselves and try and figure out what is our idol of who God is and what he thinks of us or what he wants us to do, we can start to picture We can start to paint a picture of where we lie in relation, in our relationship to God. And we start to say, well, do we actually know him? Do we actually love him? You know, would we sacrifice our own comfort, you know, our own fear, our own timidity and cowardice, you know, to talk to other people to replace that with this respect, this awesome, this righteous retribution that God has, this fear and replace that, which will develop into a love for God, and then wanting to know God. 
We must never lose our respect and appreciation for God. But we should grow beyond being motivated solely by fear and rather be motivated by God's love, having a deep love and respect for God and his words. When we fear God, it allows us to know God, to love God, and to follow God. And those are my three points. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for Jonah. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, being available, being vulnerable with us as well. Father, we only ask that we are the same with you. We ask that we also will be vulnerable, that we also will, you know, follow your commands you have for us as uncomfortable or as difficult as they may seem. But your commandments, as the scriptures tell us, are, are not burdensome. Your commandments are there because you love us. And when we follow your commandments, we learn to love you. And Father, I ask that uh, each and every one of us think of that this week. And we begin to develop a new kind of love a new kind of love for you, a new kind of love for people. Because as was said before, that you can only love people before you can serve people. And I ask that that be our, each and every one of our prayer uh, for the rest of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.